All right, everyone, welcome to the well here at SDSA. Uh, my name is Peter. It is a pleasure to be with you all virtually. Uh, so we are on part two of a four-part series called Did Jesus Really Say That? And today's topic is going to be on the topic of worry. Uh, but I just wanted to offer up a disclaimer. Uh, I am not offering any expert advice. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. So uh, what I say here is not anything that's expert, but, and nor should it replace anything um, or any expert advice that you've received. But I'm more talking to myself. Literally, I'm, I'm talking to myself in front of a camera, <laughs> but figuratively, I'm really talking to myself uh, when it comes to the topic of worry. And there's this old saying where if you speak out of a place of weakness, you'll never run out of content. So we will see uh, where this takes us. Um, no, but all joking aside, it shouldn't be, shouldn't be too long, uh, but we'll see where we go. All right, so with the topic of worry, I was thinking to myself as I was reflecting, I worry, I stress, I feel anxious. So the logical conclusion is that most people probably stress, probably worry, probably feel anxious. I know that's a, it's a deep thought right there. Um, but when I look at worry, I, I tend to think that, especially in this time, like we've heard these words unprecedented, we're in uncharted territory, what's happening in our life is, is historic, and there's a lot of thing, things on people's plate, a lot of things that will keep us up at night or that stress us. But I, I wanted to fact check myself. Um, I didn't want to assume anything. So I just have a couple of stats. I uh, looked at a report that was published by the American Psychological Association. And it was a report back in 2017 that uh, published some data briefs and statistics on, on stress and, and worry in America. Uh, and what the report said was that three out of four Americans experience at least one stress symptom in the past month. And that's a physical stress symptom, like a, a, a rapid heart rate or a uh, chest pain, uh, fatigue. And these are from stressors such as the economy. So finance, financial stability, uh, work, health, government distrust, social injustice, um, uh, conflicts, terrorism, uh, war, perception of what people think of you. Uh, and those were the, the, the markers. And 45% of Americans report lying awake every night due to some form of worry. 80% of Americans say that they check the news every day because of their desire to be informed. And 56% of those Americans who say they check the news every day admit that their desire to stay informed actually gives them more stress. What's more is that a 2019 Gallup poll uh, found that Americans are among the most stressed people in the world. And then you open up Matthew 6.34 and you find Jesus saying, therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Like, come on, Jesus. Get with the program. <laughs> like, this is... A this is a hard saying. Like, don't worry. How do we not worry? There's a lot of responsibilities we have. There's a lot of things we have to 
consider in our lives, a lot of externalities, things we can't control. I'm saying, don't worry. A lot of us spend our entire day worrying about what we did wrong yesterday and what we need to do to be where we think we should be tomorrow. And you're saying, don't worry. Now, I, I'm probably biased because of this topic, but I'm going to argue that this is Jesus' hardest saying. I know Father Timothy talks about uh, loving your enemies, and that's hard. Loving your enemies is a very hard thing, but that at least makes sense. God is love, and we know God is love. So yeah, it's hard to practice, but God created us out of his love. So we know that loving your enemies is at least the right thing to do. Um, you look at wealth. When, when, when Christ said that it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, definitely for Americans, people who live in a very consumeristic, materialistic society, like we're, we're comfortable, right? We live in a country um, that offers a lot of comforts. A lot of people in this world are probably living off of a dollar a day. Does that apply to everyone? Maybe not. In our context, yes, and that is totally a hard saying. You talk about denying yourself and taking up your cross. That's a hard saying, but we saw Jesus do that. Uh, disassociating and, and, and uh, abandoning your family, leaving your, 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 forsaking your father and your mother and, and, and your, your, your children, your brother, your sister, your uncle, your cousin. Like, that's a hard thing, but family can be annoying. <laughs> like, we could take a break from family. But for Christ to say, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things, sufficient for the day is its own trouble, doesn't seem like it's incredibly easy or practical, given everything that we experience on a daily basis. And the epitome of someone who I can think of who had the weight of the world on their shoulders uh, was the prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk, I mean, you talk about someone who was worrying about a big, big problem. Um, he, in his, in his book, in, in the Old Testament, he, he basically opens up by protesting God's inaction in the face of injustice. He said, God, the, the wicked thrive at the expense of Israel, or the wicked, I'm sorry, thrive at the expense of the righteous in Israel. The, the wicked are running the show. And even, God, those that have the power to do something about it, they're not doing anything, like the courts, the magistrates, all these people who are in authority. They're not doing anything to solve the issue. And they themselves are corrupt. So God responds to Habakkuk. He says, I'm raising up the Babylonians. They will execute judgment on my behalf. The Babylonians the Babylonians who are cold-blooded, the Babylonians who are ruthless, who are barbaric, who are monstrous, who think that their strength is their God, who will ravage the land, they are the ones that are going to be raised up during this wicked time and execute judgment. <laughs> Habakkuk, you know, that like want to get away, Southwest Airlines commercial or the, the, I don't know if you've ever watched Saved by the Bell. Zach Morris does this little like timeout thing uh, and everyone freezes. Habakkuk was probably like, you know what, God, forget we had the conversation. Like, I don't want the Babylonians. Things are okay the way they are. 
let's, let's just leave Israel the way it is. I don't, I, don't, I don't need the Babylonians to come in. So King Nebuchadnezzar does in fact come and conquer Israel, conquers Egypt, the king of the Babylonians. Things get a lot worse. Paganism is rampant. All sorts of abuse is part of the fabric of society. And you talk about a worrisome time. And a lot of us are like Habakkuk. He is wondering, questioning, even acknowledges towards the end of the book um, by saying a little quote here about how the fig tree is not budding and that there are no grapes on the vines, uh, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. And if we're honest with ourselves, that's sometimes how we look at things. We see things that are happening in our life, and we say there's no progress being made. I don't see sheep in the pen. I don't see cattle in the stalls. I don't see a harvest. I don't see fruit. I'm not bearing any fruit. There's nothing that I can hang my hat on because sometimes that's how we measure progress. We look at success or what we think is success in the terms of a circumstance or event or an outcome. And we say, that's what I can hang my hat on. And Habakkuk is saying, I don't see anything. Yeah, and, and you know, granted Habakkuk at the end, he, he proclaims that regardless of, of all these things and nothing that's tangible that he can hold on to, he says, I'm still gonna rejoice in God but sometimes we don't think we are bearing fruit. And we're like, God, I need some fruit. I need something. And God is more interested in the soil. He's more interested in the seeds, planting, growing, harvesting. But we're like, God, I can't, I can't post soil and dirt on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter. I need to post fruit. And God's saying, I... <laughs> That's a byproduct. I care about the soil. I care about the seed. I care about the water, the sun, planting, growing. Um, so my, my daughter, she's, she's a toddler. She's you know, at this age now where she really doesn't listen. <laughs> she doesn't want to listen. Like She's very focused on doing things her way. And you know, God forbid you try to tell her something. It's like, no, 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 no. So I was talking with my wife, Katie. Like, well, what are we doing about this? Like, she's just <laughs> doesn't want to give, right? Like, she's not budging. So Katie says, well, we got to give her options. I'm like, options? Why are you talking about options? She doesn't pay rent. Why are we giving her options? Um, but okay, you know, listen, uh, and it's painful. Like, we do like this dance, right? So I'm like, okay, do you want the, the carrots or the tomatoes as your vegetable? Do you want the, the, the pink and gray shoes to wear or do you want the, the, the blue and, and yellow shoes to wear? Which toothbrush do you want to use today? What kind of toothpaste? Do you want to get into the car seat yourself or do you want daddy to put you in? And it's exhausting, but she's sometimes wrestling with this decision, right? Like she's so focused. You give her these options and you can tell it's like this computer program running where she's trying to figure out, okay, how given my parameters, what is the best possible outcome I can get? 
And you can see her, like, she's, like, really wrestling with this decision of, of, of the options we give. And, and sometimes we're like that, too. We look at all these inputs and we say, well, what, what is the best that we can do right now to get us to, to this thing, this thing that we want, this goal, this thing that we need to achieve? How do I maximize my potential in every decision? Overanalyze things to make sure that we can control and get the best possible outcome the highest probability of success. And we become these like machines in a way. Um, there's a really profound story in Exodus uh, where Moses had an incredibly difficult decision to make. So, I mean, as we all know the story, uh, Israel was, was held in, in captivity and bondage in Egypt for 400 years. Uh, Moses parted the Red Sea God was able to deliver the Israelites um, out of bondage. And then Pharaoh, his chariots, they're all cast into the sea. Really glorious moment. We see God's glory. They go through the Red Sea. They're on the other side. And God calls Moses up to, to Mount Sinai. And he's up there for 40 days. And God wants to give Moses the commandments. He wants to give Moses really instructions on how the people of Israel as a, a sovereign people should live now. So Moses is up there, and the Israelites are getting restless. Moses is delayed in coming down. So they have this brilliant idea, and we know what happens. They end up putting this, this golden calf together to worship. And Moses is furious. I mean, he's livid with the people of Israel. God is livid with the people of Israel. And Moses and God are like negotiating, and God's like, you know what? Go to the promised land. Go to the promised land. I will send an angel. I will send an angel to guide you. You will defeat your enemies. You will be victorious. You will get to the promised land. Go. But my presence isn't coming with you. My presence isn't going to go. You can go with the people of Israel, but I won't be there. Moses had a bigger decision than figuring out which toothbrush he was going to use or what vegetable he was going to eat or what shoes he was going to put on. Um, you know, unlike my daughter or, <laughs> or in aspects of my life, he had the biggest decision to make. He could have said, all right, like, see you later, God. I guess I'll catch you on the flip side. But look at what Moses says in, in Exodus 33. He says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all other people on the face of the earth? Moses, in an instant, says, God, if you don't go, we don't go. If you don't go to the promised land, we're not going to the promised land. I would rather be in the wilderness, in your presence, than be in the promised land without your presence. The promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And I love what he says. His question, which is rhetorical, 
what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Let that sink in. So the promised land, the thing, the circumstance, the event, the stuff, the goal, these things that we try to, to, to obtain that consume us, that don't always make us so content. That promised land, that doesn't distinguish us from all the other people on the face of the earth. Not the promised job, not the promised financial stability, not the promised house, not the promised car, not the promised friends, not the promised Twitter followers, but God's presence. And Moses does one of these things, right, where he kind of volunteers everyone. <laughs> he doesn't say, if, if, if you don't go, I don't go. He said, uh-uh, we, as the body, the church, we're not going. And <laughs> I, I, I was thinking about this. I'm like, it's like the equivalent of, you know, you sitting with your friends and someone's like, oh, I'm moving. And some friend, like one. <laughs> schmuck offers up to help the other person move and then you feel like you're stuck helping that person move too right like it's like oh yeah we'll all help you move and the next thing you know it's like a saturday and you're like lifting someone's couch or moving something through the door um and you get like a pizza and a gatorade to show for it uh that's moses he's like volunteering everyone he's like none none of the israelites are going said another way Moses knew that it's not about the destination, it's about the journey. That we thrive in the process, not the outcome, not the event, not the result, but the process. That God uses the journey to grow us. We kind of lost this concept of a process a little bit in today's age, in the 21st century, um, which is like this idea of a process that and, and, and Christ always referenced like an agricultural type of analogy. And, and people really understood that type of analogy because it was like an agricultural age. So he tried to always use examples of like sowing and, and reaping and there's the harvest and that you go through all of this and even when you get your first fruits, you sacrifice those to God and it takes time. Our process now, <laughs> it's like if our phone is one millisecond slower, we buy the new phone. If, you know, if God doesn't operate like Amazon, same day delivery, or we don't have like a two hour window with our groceries being delivered, that we take matters into our own hand. Um, and that's, that's kind of where we are. It's a short process. If I don't see results, I take matters into my own hand. And God, like I said, he's all about the soil. He's all about the seeds. He's all about planting, thriving in the process. And that's something that Moses was so wise in and understanding that, it being about the journey. So the question I'll throw out to folks is, what distinguishes my life from everyone else's? You know, I was thinking about this if Moses was here today. Like, what would he say? Like, he's probably rolling over in his grave. He's coming around, looking, trying to distinguish people 
differentiate people all over, figuring out who, like, who are the people of God, looking for the people of God who are in God's presence. Look at a, probably a bunch of people <laughs> like myself, like running around like chickens with their heads cut off, who have seemingly a lot of things, but constantly moving from one task to the next, from one place to the next, one circumstance, one, one goal. And that's not really distinguishing us. If I ask myself, like, really, what makes me different? What makes me different as a Christian from everyone else? It's not those things that we so often try to get and we seemingly are never content in that process trying to get. So God's presence, that distinguishes us. I want to say this because I believe it. I, I think the most God-like thing that we can do, the most God-like thing we can do is live in God's presence in the present. The most God-like thing we can do is live in God's presence in the presence, in the present. Why? Because God doesn't live in the past. God doesn't live in the future. God lives in the present. If you think about it, you can't even really measure the present. Like as I'm speaking now, once you hear it, it's already the past. When we think about things that are happening, you're thinking about that, that is some future event that isn't even a reality right now. God lives in the present. And we don't say like, I, I look forward, God, to your second coming so I can get to know you. We get to know God now in the present. We do what's set before us. So a point I want to make is uh, God's ultimately not interested in developing my future vision. He's interested in developing me. I know that seems like a hot topic. <laughs> it's not meant to be a hot topic. You're probably thinking like, Peter, it's, you're making it seem like we shouldn't be responsible or God doesn't care about my plans or my aspirations or my dreams or my goals and that we shouldn't plan things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is at the end of the day, if we waste our life, we use all of our mental, mental energy drawing ourselves and others closer to a thing, a person, an ideology, a cause, a, 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 a goal, an end result. We spend all of our focus doing that rather than drawing ourselves and others closer to God's presence that we're never really going to live a satisfied life. We're only going to be hoping for one. You know, Christianity, and, and Christ taught us this, is not, it's not an outside to inside kind of religion. It's an inside to outside. And we know this because of the story with Christ where his disciples, they were 
eating and they didn't wash their hands. And the Pharisees came, like they always do, accusing Jesus and the disciples, saying they're eating and they haven't washed their hands. Like, what's going on? You guys aren't following this tradition. And Christ gets pretty upset. He says, it's not what happens on the outside that changes the shape of the inside. It's not the things that happen or the things that we want to get or the things that we, we try to aim for. It's not that stuff. Because the Pharisees thought that all these things, these traditions, these things that they tried to move towards, these actions, that they changed the inside. And Christ said, no, that's not how it goes. And even then, he said, you all, you Pharisees, you burden the people. You burden the people with this expectation that there always needs to be tied to your life some type of action or thing that proves like a sense of worth and accomplishment, that you're burdening people with all of these tasks, all of these things, but your heart is far from me. You've built a culture and a society where people are so focused on these things that need to be accomplished, but they forgot sight of me. So yeah, God's not interested in developing our future vision in that sense. He wants to develop me, character, through our process, through a journey. And, you know, as I was thinking through this, I thought of, like, groups of, like, thought, how, how I tend to, you know, even categorize myself, which I shouldn't, but I was like, you know, sometimes I think I'm a member of a, 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 the if-then club where if I had made this decision or if I do this, then this will happen. If, if I uh, um, uh, just could, could, could get this thing, obtain this thing, then I'll be so much happier. If I could just convince people to see something this way, then life would be so much better. But I don't think God wants me in the if-then club. I think God wants us in the but-and club. Look at what Jesus says, really the same passage, right before the verse about not worrying. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, in the next verse, do not worry about tomorrow. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. So if you want to bear fruit, tie it to a good root system. And I'm going to end with a story of a couple of folks who I think were pretty good at being members of the but and club and not the if then club. Um, so it was, it's a story of three guys. The year was roughly 600 BC. There's this golden image. Uh, and this king had a decree. There was this mandate. Um, this king had this golden image built. And he said when the, the trumpet sounds, when all these musical instruments play, um, everyone stop what you're doing and worship this golden image. 
So that was the law. And sure enough, when the trumpet, the musical instruments, like at random times, just people would play these things and everyone would just stop what they're doing and worship and bow to this golden image. Except three people. There's three people who refused to bow. You guys do what you want. We're not bowing. So everyone told on these three people. Everyone told on, on these people who refused to bow and uh, word got to the king. The king was furious. So he summoned these three people. And I'm going to do some reading. Um, so bear with me for a little bit. But the, the king summons the three men and, and says, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, people you may have heard of, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I've set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So they responded to the king. They said, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. So the king puts them into the fiery furnace. And then the king says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. There are three men that went in, and the king saw four. And commentary will say that fourth person was Jesus. And the king says he looks like a son of the gods. Now, just to put this in some context, there'll be a little sidebar. But this king has seen everything under the sun. He's not easily impressed. Like he just built a golden statue that was twice the height of Noah's Ark. He's seen a lot. And he looks at someone in a fire and says, this guy looks like he's the son of the gods. Probably a beautiful sight to see. That's her God. That's Jesus. Same Jesus that was born in a manger. Um, died and, and, and was resurrected. But I thought that was pretty interesting. Anyways, um, so he says, Praise be to God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble. For no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That king was King Nebuchadnezzar. The king that Habakkuk was so terrified of. The king of the Babylonians. The king who came in and conquered Egypt and Israel. The one that Habakkuk was talking about when he was terrified. He said, these people are monstrous. And God said, they're going to execute judgment on my behalf. And three men, three men turned an entire nation to God. 
because of their root system. Because they were part of the but, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. They were part of the but and club. Not the if, not the then, but these were people. They purposed in their heart decades earlier. They weren't going to defile themselves with the king's delicacies. They said, I'm just going to live my life in God's presence. I'll eat grass for all I care. That stuff, you guys offer that up to the king's gods. I'm not going to have any part of it. They did their own thing. They worried about every single day being in God's presence. And because of that, they had a root system and they bared much fruit because they sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and they sought God's presence. They turned an entire nation upside down. You talk about big things happening. I can only imagine that we have a group of people and a church and a body whose sole goal is to get themselves and, and others and everyone into God's presence. We have a world like that. All those things are going to be added onto us. All right, let's bow our heads for a short prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to come before you, Lord. Lord, we pray for your peace and your comfort, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we always aim to strive for your presence in our lives and that we move the obstacles and the things that get in the way the, the, the tasks and the goals and the results and the circumstances and all these events that fill our plate and don't leave room for you. We pray that we always seek your kingdom and your righteousness with the knowledge that we know that all these things are going to be added to us. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you do. Thank you for your blessings. And, oh, Lord, hear us as we say through the intercession.